Hi, this is Dr. Carl Goldcamp. If you're interested in learning about the ketogenic diet like I was to save my own life, then this is probably the podcast for you. Eight years ago, I knew nothing about it. Six years ago, it saved my life. Three years ago, I started researching and talking with some of the authorities in the field and attending medical conferences about this to understand why and how keto so dramatically changed my and my wife's Judy's lives. The purpose of this podcast is to share our journey of discoveries with you in understanding how keto is so effective in improving so many different conditions from obesity, epilepsy, diabetes, infertility, MS, Alzheimer's, heart disease, to name a few. So take a step away from all the hype you've probably heard and roll up your sleeves with me and join me weekly to explore this living miracle that anyone can access. We'll talk science, we'll talk food. We'll explore its history and evolution to today, which is that the sheer wonder of the ketogenic way of eating has changed untold number of lives, unlike anything before it. And in case I forget to mention it, please join our Facebook group, Keto Naturopath. Hi, this is Dr. Goldcamp. Welcome back to another episode of the Keto Naturopath. Today, this is um, a kind of an interjection of a concept or a topic, I should say, that I wanted to cover. You know, I try to get ahead of my schedule, and so I'm about a month and a half ahead, and I have a sort of a series, part of the cancer series and so on. But this is an idea that's been brewing in the back of my mind for a while, and it I tossed it into the Facebook group that we have and uh, there was a fair amount of interest. So let me tell you about the etiology of the idea, uh, the cause, the uh, beginning of the idea. And the idea was this. There was an ad by Bulletproof Coffee that showed this delicious glass of fatty coffee. So it's a tall glass. It's got chocolate nibs on top. It looks plenty thick. looks like a milkshake. And at the top says, the fat bomb. And below that it says, keto iced coffee protein shake. So I thought, well, there's something about that that I just don't like, and then I think it's a bit misrepresenting. You know, you it didn't, and it said keto iced coffee. Okay, so you got the keto part of it, which we will assume that that means if you drink this coffee, you will be in ketosis. And so the idea of the fat bomb, we haven't done fat bombs for years. Primarily, they weren't, they were fun, uh, but uh, they weren't effective, and there's a whole market for them, and I it just wasn't for me after a while, so I just outgrew it. But as one of our clients said, he said, you know, um, he actually did the program twice. He said, I did like the fat bomb idea because it got me off the things were more addictive. So he did use the fat bombs, but the second time through, he said it wasn't for him either, but it served its purpose. And I thought that perspective was very helpful. So I'm not trying to make things wrong. I'm just trying to dig a little deeper. So I cut and pasted this picture and I put it in my notebook on my uh, Apple laptop and I just keep ideas there. It's an idea page. So I went in and and the recipe was there. So I'll give you the recipe. It's um, half an avocado, a cup and a quarter of full fat coconut milk, BPH free, don't you know? One scoop of collagen powder. I told you it was bulletproof, so it's bulletproof collagen powder. And tablespoon of cacao butter, a half a tablespoon of uh, brain octane, which is their version of the C8, um, a little bit of C10, MCT oil, cacao nibs, cinnamon garnish, stevia to taste, unsweetened frozen coffee cubes, that's clever, 
half a cup of ice and a quarter teaspoon of Ceylon cinnamon. So the cinnamon is in there twice, by the way. Okay, so that's what that was. So what I did is that I said, you know, why don't I just write this out for their macros and calories and see what it comes up to. So I went into, you know, online and looked up these different, the nutrient values of all these things and put it together. I'm not going to give you the blow by blow, but the totals were, let's see where the totals, the totals are, the calories were 110, 110, right? 910 calories. And this is a regular, maybe it was a 12 ounce. Um, if you do all these, I don't know actually what it turns out to in terms of volume, but if you, if you follow the recipe, this is what the recipe yields is 910 calories for that drink. The fat was 86 grams, which by calories is about 85 to 86% of the whole drink, 32 grams of carbs and 20 grams of protein. So that's a fatty coffee. And the advertising is that it's keto ice protein coffee. So they put in the collagen, which was the protein part. So they're, they're not lying about that. So what's the value of this? Other than it being a delicious, you might as well call it a milkshake. You know, it's, it really doesn't serve any other purpose. Is it uh, disproportionately lower carbs? I would guess. It's clearly incredibly high fat. The bigger point was, and probably the reason that I cut and pasted this and put it in the idea notebook for so long was this whole high fat, what we had been noticed, noticing with our um, clients that are going through the program, it's 90 days, but the two weeks for doing labs, getting all that out of the way, is that they would initially lose weight when they dropped the carbs, and then they would sort of plateau or go down gradually but really not much would happen. And our first programs were such that uh, some, you know, uh, way back when we did it for free, and we had a much more basic concept to the, uh, to no testing and all that other stuff, that some did get uh, fat loss. They certainly got their quote unquote mental clarity and got their energy and that's good. But there wasn't a tremendous report for weight loss. So I wondered, you know, it's a free program. Maybe people weren't compliant. They don't have to be compliant. And, but um, most of them showed up for most of the sessions that we did. Then it grew into being something more sophisticated, more labs and so on and so forth. Then we, as I've mentioned before, encouraged for the second half of the program to slide it into a protein sparing modified fast, which means that we just do protein for uh, the majority of the last four weeks. So that would be thin, uh, thin. <clears throat> that would be uh, low fat protein. So you trim the fat, it's the skinless chicken, it's the defatted pork loins, meaning you take the fat on the outside away and things like that. And then lean cuts of meat like sirloin. You could even put tenderloin in there as a lean cut of meat, but that's a bit expensive. So when we did that, we actually started to see some results. So it started, hmm, how is that? And let me actually um, preface that with, that was over about a year ago or so, year plus, is that about a year and a half ago, we happened to have, be at two conferences that were almost back to back. They coincidentally were both in San Diego. And um, we decided just to have the protein. We weren't going to have any veggies, just to have the proteins. Didn't really 
didn't want, want any veggies, but I wanted obviously something to eat. So we found that at the end of, you know, each conference is about three days and there's a few days between the next one is that we dropped weight in the course of, well, we felt thinner. We didn't weigh ourselves, felt thinner. I thought, well, that was interesting. Was that subjective? We both felt that. So when we started looking into that a little more as in dropping the fat from what we had been doing, because we'd already dropped the carbs, that we suddenly felt a, a jolt of fat loss and a little bit on the weight, but mostly it was that we felt thinner. So then we started exploring it a little more, a little more academic. And my feelings are that there's a lot of misguided information in the keto world. And the word keto has really no meaning. I mean, it's on anything. I told you, oh, actually it's in an upcoming podcast that uh, in Whole Foods, there's a big stack of these canisters called keto protein, which basically was collagen. You know, but they just use the word and, and, and that's, there's nothing wrong with that, but I, people are so drawn to the word keto. It's got to be good for them. And I have four sisters and, and two of them are, are swearing, oh, I, I got these keto products and expecting immediate, you know, transformation because they got a product that had in the title, in the name of the product, keto something or other. And that's not how it works. So what I'm saying is it's overmarketed. I, I wouldn't uh, trust the word by itself, but trust the concept of a ketogenic diet. So the classic ketogenic diet is 20 carbs or less per day of, uh, of protein. I'm uh, sorry, of carbs. And uh, you calculate out the protein. We've been through that before, but that's what a ketogenic diet is. It's something very specific. It was something that was developed in the early 1920s. It came out of the whole fasting movement of the previous 30 years. So it is a thing. It is a definition. It does have value and it is very specific. So there's that. Now we've, as we do in this whole world that evolved, the world of Facebook and YouTube and so on and so forth, it's bastardized meaning of anything that was once sincere. And, and it's hard to see through who's telling the truth, who's not telling the truth, what has validity and what does not have validity. So with the fat bomb of being something so high fat, low carb, that I think, you know, to be, and to put it this way, to be chasing ketones, you know, yes, there is a benefit in ketones um, and be a ketone burner to, per, to burn preferred fuel, to burn ketones as your preferred fuel that is a benefit, but not at the cost of having two or three times more calories per day. You're not going to be losing weight. The only way if weight loss is your goal, which it is for most people, the only way to lose weight is to get to some point of being hypocaloric. That is, you're eating fewer calories per day than your body needs to burn. That's the magic. However, the magic really is about finding a diet, quote unquote, a diet, a way to eat, a way of living, whatever you want to call it, whatever, I'm not quite, you know, it's, you go through, people are so tight with these definitions. It's got to mean something. You have to find a way for yourself that is sustainable and feel comfortable with. And it's not some arduous task. It might be arduous for you, difficult initially for you to transition into this new way of doing it because you're moving away from probably a standard American diet, which is high fat and high carbs. So that's understandable. Your body has to transition and it's not always comfortable, but it's not going to take forever. 
So when you get to this new place, you know, something has to be sustainable. It's not so much that you know you have to count things. Hopefully you don't have to count, you don't have to count anything. You don't have to count grams of macros. You don't have to count calories. You have learned your way to a comfortable place. And so that's where we are. We had to do the same thing. But what I'm saying is there's a lot of misguided misinformation and some of it is consciously misguided so that you buy their products. Consciously misguided so you follow that person. Consciously misguided so you don't hear your own intuition. Your own intuition says this has to be sustainable for the long term. It has to be a real way of eating. It has to be a real lifestyle without feeling feel like you're going to some new church or adopting some new religion. This is not religious. This is the evolution of a diet. So given that, back to the focus on the high fat, this fat bomb, this high fatty coffee, that does look delicious, but it doesn't make me want to go out and have one. This echoed of the results that came back from Verta Health about a year ago. So Verta Health was the company that uh, Jeff Folick and Steve Finney and uh, Sami Inklinen, who's the CEO of it, all really interesting people. And I've personally been able to have the chance to talk with Jeff. He used to be at UConn, and my medical practice was in Old Lyme, Connecticut, and before that, Mystic. So um, at least we had that overlap. I saw him at the first metabolic therapy conference. Steve Finney I've seen present a number of times. Right now, they are in a very commercial world. So Sammy Inklinen has a product and a vision to reverse diabetes in the world, and he's doing it. And he's leading a lot of people down that way. Uh, Steve Finney was an academician. Now he works for, and they do certain studies. Studies doesn't mean it's like the Bible of honesty. A study means you're setting up a certain... Uh, a certain hypothesis and you're testing a hypothesis and you're, you know, it's either it, it was true or it wasn't true. And then you go through and hopefully do it correctly, but how you set it up and also how you interpret the results. And so just when people feel like there's this holy grail, well, there's this study that said a lot of studies are bogus studies, by the way, because they know there's people, academicians that will cite them and it could mean nothing. So it's got to be way more than just the abstract that people read to each other. So anyway, but Verta Health took it pretty seriously. They set up and they've now had a, uh, their program is now, I think, and it's going to its fourth or its fifth year. But the, the data that they released for the first two years had over, these are people that were uh, type two diabetics. And uh, most of them were obese, to my understanding. I read it a long time ago, but now I'm looking at one chart that I want to talk about. And the chart is of, the 104 weeks, which is almost two years, that they, you know, had a group that was just, uh, was normal. They weren't doing anything special, but they were measured against. That's their control. And then they had a group in which they dropped the carbs and they were coached about keeping their carbs down. So they, this is a measure of ketosis over that period of time. It's a long period of time. And it's a fairly high number of people. I believe it was a thousand people, not perfectly a thousand, around a thousand. And what it showed is that this group, as an average, was barely into ketosis at all in the course of those two years. And uh, they were definitely not in ketosis for the second year. And in the first year, they were maybe in ketosis. When I'm talking about 
what it, I mean by ketosis, nutritional ketosis is arguably 0.5 beta hydroxy ketones, BHB, per millimole, a millimole of that per liter of blood. And so it they were maybe for two months out of their whole first year, they were in nutritional ketosis per that definition. That's not very much. That's hardly anything at all. So they got results. I mean, they had positive results. People were reversing their diabetes and some were losing their weight and so on and so forth. So I look at this and go, this goes along and making me think that maybe high fat diet is not anything special at all. Maybe it's another crazy, you know, it's, it's merely a, a, the ne- next trend in somebody's marketing it to you and marketing it to me as well. Fat's important. We, when we are fat burners, we are in ketosis. It is crucially important if you're, if you are a epileptic, regardless of age, it is crucially important for you if you are family history or you have mild cognitive impairment per the interview and the studies that we've talked about of Dr. Stephen Cunane. So it is not without its merits. It's very, very important in certain areas. And so that brings me to kind of another idea is that what is your purpose? People tend to jump on bandwagons and think they're going to get all the goodies. You know, they're, they're looking for the hack. They're not really thinking as the number of people that come into our Facebook group and they go, so is this keto or is that keto? And I go, what do you mean? Is this keto or that keto? They're actually asking me to give them some sort of definition. Keto means nothing, by the way. And so I say, um, does it mean, are you in ketosis? I mean, give me some data, give me a story, give me a background. Are you, you know, they don't want to track. They just want to know I'm going to eat things that are keto and my life is going to be better. Please don't be that moronic. Um, initially I'm very, I'm sympathetic with that perspective, but, but not, and I'm speaking from experience of people in our Facebook group that they don't want to track, they don't want to measure, but they want to be on keto and they want to lose weight. Well, they're going to have to do a little bit of work. And I'm sorry that you have to point them in that direction, but it's not a lot of work and it actually gets to be incredibly easy. But a little self-awareness in the context in which they are in and the context from which they came from is very important. So the distinction on the basis of purpose is important. Is your purpose about mild cognitive impairment? Is it about dementia? Is it about Alzheimer's? Is it about epilepsy? Is it about some sort of neurological disorder like multiple sclerosis or Parkinson's? Well, those speak to a pretty high fat sort of orientation of diet. That makes sense. If you are here and you're a normal person and don't have any of those histories and you're here because you want to lose weight, well, by having you know, gallons of fat on a daily basis really are not going to get you there. It will get you into ketosis if you drop the carbs as well, but it's not going to help you lose any weight. So you really have to be reasonable with yourself. You have to be a little more aware. And, but I would question, you know, if you can write down what is the purpose of you wanting to get into ketosis long-term? Is it because you, it might even be you're, you're in because of a uh, can't adjunctive cancer therapy. We've, we will be talking about that even more in subsequent podcasts, but, um, you really got to write it down and know why you're doing this and not just chase the word keto. And certainly 
as you get started with this whole idea of you want to go keto, you should get a glucometer and you should get a ketometer. So the two together are basically keto mojo. Um, so you have some idea of what your blood sugars are and you have some ideas of what your ketones are on a regular basis and start to track them. Ideally, even graph them. That would be great. And if you have those two numbers, you can come up with a thing called uh, GKI or glucose ketone index. And that came from Tom Siegfried from way back in the interview when I did with him. He got one of his students to put together a little app for that. And he, they gave it away for free. Incredibly generous person. Um, so that's where that came from. So when people track, though, the third thing would be tracking the, the uh, GKI. And the idea if you're a cancer patient to get under two. But so those are the reasons you would probably want to have high fat or not have high fat. So now, most people that I work with, their number one reason is they want to drop weight and they're getting into their 50s and 60s and even or even 40s, actually. They're getting heavier, younger. And so what can I do? And so we try to make it easy. We try to have a plan. They have to do the, the discipline of tracking. And but the idea is now, as we've evolved in our program, and the only way you get there is by doing these labs and this sort of collective data, a study in essence, that you got to drop your fat. And so, um, and so now you're at low carbs, low fat, which by default means you're high protein. Um, and the, one of the tools certainly is fasting along the way whenever you want to fast or intermittent fasting and so on and so forth. But actually, I believe the answer that we're heading to, and I don't think anybody can get there overnight, is having a, a higher protein diet. And um, it's easy to do and you track. It would be of questionable value, though, if you were a cancer patient. I don't think I would be advocating high protein because of a thing called the substrate level phosphorylation of glutamine and a few other amino acids that can convert into energy for cancer cells. So you try to avoid things like that. More on that later. Or go back and do your homework and listen to the podcast with uh, Tom Siegfried for uh, both the prequel and the, and the interview. So that's the point that I wanted to make is that, you know, first it was that, we'll call it the milkshake, the very high fat milkshake, fatty coffee. And then it was when you look at Verda's results that they hard, had hardly anybody in ketosis and as an average, they were in ketosis maybe two weeks collectively in their first year and not at all in their second year, but they still were continuing to get benefits. And so the question comes up, well, let's assume that they didn't change their diet. So they were eating the same thing for the first year and the second year. So why would this graph be true? How can we make this graph true or understandable? Well, we can make this graph true by saying, your body has, one has to learn how to make ketones again. I mean, it hasn't forgotten, but really make, as you become fat adapted, it's going to ramp up and go, okay, we're going to get serious about making ketones. And so there's that part, but it also has to get, you know, used to being able to burn ketones. So as it makes these transitions into the creation of and the consumption of ketones, we're speaking primarily of BHP because that's what we're measuring here, is that it will become more efficient. And so as it becomes more efficient, it can work, uh, it can do the work on fewer ketones is the idea. 
So the numbers tend to attenuate. The numbers tend to go down as time goes on. And so consequently, you go, wait a minute, what happened to my really good numbers? Um, I mean, I would get numbers even up into the sevens. And so my numbers were ridiculously high. And other people could as well. And we were I was very C8 oriented, as you know. Um, and that serves the purposes. And I wanted to play around. I was like, wow, what, what a concept. But in terms of fat loss, if this is your purpose, you wrote down on your piece of paper, it is fat loss. People call it weight loss, but it's fat that they're really talking about. Then I would move to drop your fats after you've dropped your carbs and really get focused on having lean protein as your way of eating. I find that I really am satisfied with the the steak that I have at night or the less so chicken. Um, Chicken's easy because it's pretty easy to get lean chicken to stick off the skin, right? Uh, But it's not as across the board satisfying, but pretty close. You know, it's usually the leftovers I have for the next couple of days, but all in all, I'm not craving anything. And yeah, I get to have my uh, nearly black chocolate. Um, yeah, we have a few tricks. The tricks are the protein bread we talked about. And um, I don't really go out of my way anymore to add fat to what I'm eating. I mean, I've evolved. And um, I think that's a healthy evolution. It's not moving away from keto, quote, quote unquote, oh my gosh. And the name of my podcast is a keto naturopath. It is about using ketosis in a more intelligent, efficient way, an efficient manner. And so I hope that your purpose is clear. And with your purpose, you'll know how how attached you have to be to chasing ketones. Now, the ketones could be very important to you. Certainly if you're epileptic and we had we had interviews with from the Charlie Foundation. And so it is a big deal. So but one of the initial concerns when the ketogenic diet was first put together, Dr. Russell Wilder, but this is really his um, colleague, Dr. Penniman, that um, they were worried, that I mean, primarily it was pediatrics as well, they were worried that it wasn't healthy. It wasn't going to be healthy. You got all this fat. And so he goes, yeah, I got the fat there. So they would be in ketosis. And remember, they're coming away from the established therapy prior to for type 1 diabetics and epilepsy was fasting. Well, the problem with fasting is you can't do it forever. You really, you got to show up to food at some point. And so uh, it was a terrible life for type 1 diabetics. You know, they, yeah, they could live to five years with fasting, but eventually they died from malnutrition and they died from starving to death. So that's not a way it had to be changed. So coming away from that really austere, therapeutic way of treating people, is like, you know, we got to get food in there. So they came up with what works in terms of ketones to keep a majority of pediatrics, uh, sorry, majority of epileptics from seizing. So they had fewer seizures and that was good. And they had their portion of protein, but they really wanted to make sure that they had enough protein. That was their first concern. Are these guys getting enough protein? Is this a healthy diet? Can a little kid get to be a bigger kid? Can they grow normally? Or are they going to, are they, are we deforming them? So these are the concerns for the first five or 10 years. And then of course it was the implementation. How do you get your little daughter or son to consistently have that high fat ketogenic diet because they're used to be seizing a lot. So that's how they would 
work with, you know, I think it was a four or five diets that um, varied the percentage of fat. And by the way, that's where MCT oils, medium chain triglycerides, and specifically C8 really shined because that was the most ketogenic of all the fats out there. And so if they had efficient fats to making ketones, they could have more carbs and more protein in their diet. So therefore be a healthier diet. So that's where the C8 and the MCT oil really came through. And it was in the 60s, by the way, that that they had the MCT, the, the MCT diet. You know, that was like a big breakthrough. Why don't, you know, the whole thinking of make our fats more efficient towards making ketones, therefore make the ketogenic diet for epilepsy. And, and uh, I don't think they thought about Parkinson's then and other neurological conditions. It would make it easier to implement. And they were right. So from there, it sat since the 60s. It hasn't really evolved much. And so they were concerned from the 20s, are they getting enough protein? Are they getting enough protein? And so it's really interesting when you think about that was the right question to ask at that time. Are they getting enough protein? Should they have more protein? What's the upper limit of protein? Well, the upper limit of protein is pretty high. And um, you can have a lot of protein. You'll get very satiated. And you will, if that's all you're having, now I'm speaking of whole food protein. Um, if you're having meat, chicken, fish, whatever, and that's all you're eating, that you're going to be hypocaloric because it's that's satiating. So, uh, which is kind of nice to know and that you, you actually don't have to worry about your calories if that's what you're having as proteins. But if you're a child who's already skinny, then, uh, that's not going to be enough. So you have the proteins and you got to start having some of the, maybe the carbs there. You know, so it's, that's where it becomes kind of dicey. You're measuring the carbs versus the fats and how much you bring that in. So that's where that was. Um, I thought that, you know, the whole idea of protein as being really the most important part of your diet, of anybody's diet, regardless. And we are now in a mostly pro protein diet, a whole foods protein diet. Um, it really started a while back. You know, it was certainly... You can cite a number of books that brings you back to the 60s. You certainly are right back to the 20s when they're going, talking about protein. That was their big concern, uh, was about protein. And yes, protein does convert by gluconeogenesis to glucose, but it's not very high and it's not very fast. It's kind of a delayed reaction, a slow burn, as some people would say. So there's all sorts of types of protein shakes out there and the other aspect of protein shakes is is you have a very refined, and I would say artificial, type of protein. You know, and most of the protein drinks actually come from either milk, obviously, there, that would be a milkshake, right? Then you have whey protein, which is the waste product from cheese making. And by the way, Italy was known, oh, in the last 500 years or so of of in their cheese making to give the way to the pigs. Why would they give the way to the pigs? It had to be fresh. Pigs, pig, pigs only eat fresh whey. And so they would give them fresh whey. And whey, and so you have the curds of whey, that's cheese making. So one, you know, it gets chunky, looks like cottage cheese, and you pour off the other part. That's the whey. The liquidy part is the whey. So in essence, it's a liquid that they would drink. Even though there are such things as whey cheeses, mostly of uh, Scandinavia and Norway. Uh, they're pretty watery. The water has to be sort of taken off and dried out. 
but the whey is insulinogenic. It's not, it doesn't jack up your blood sugar, your glucose. It jacks up your blood insulin. So it makes pigs fat. That was perfect. You know, they had, they had their cows. They made their cheese. They love their cheese. Then they had their whey. They gave it to their pigs and their pigs became fat. It was like, what a perfect, perfect little loop of how to use cow's milk. Okay. So the other kind of casein, sorry, give the answer. The other kind of protein is casein. So you got milk, whey, and casein. They all come from the cow. Uh, milk is it all, then whey is part of it. And casein is really the cheese part, part of the cheese part. So all that is pretty popular out there, and they're pretty popular for um, bodybuilders to take. I think uh, not necessarily very healthy. Many of you know that I'm not a big fan of dairy. I mean, I love the taste of it, but I've just seen too many people, um, way too many people that have benefited from simply being off dairy. And that's for other podcasts. Other types of proteins are egg, soy, rice, and pea. Uh, pea we often used in practice with autistic children because that was the least allergenic, the least problematic. And when you say, well, rice, that sounds like a carb. Well, this is the protein part of the rice, not the carb part of the rice. But they are all refined. Those are all powders, right? Those are all powders. And um, as you'll listen into the next uh, next few podcasts, you'll listen about incretins or incretins. And that's uh, pretty interesting. And that has to do with refined foods, processed foods, and that jacking up your insulin. Unbeknownst to a lot of people. Okay, so I want to end there. And I just wanted to say that, you know, yes, I went through the high fat part and uh, we made our own fat bombs back when I started. I guess that was uh, four or five years ago, maybe even longer. Um, I started with peanut butter, thinking that was our almond butter. And then I would add in a lot of fat and then I would add in my stevia. And looking back, none of that was beneficial, really. But it was a place to begin. And this is before all those medical conferences. So it wasn't a bad idea. Um, it was a place to learn, but it, didn't invent, it did not benefit me very much long-term. And so now it's like, oh my gosh, I, I so, it, it is so conspicuous the difference that a um, protein, whole food protein, primarily diet makes with people that it's just outstanding. Uh, when I see this is Judy, my wife, who comes from a family of very large diabetics for, and, and they're not very tall people. Hope I said that nicely. And, you know, she's not like that. She's not like them. She's very different. She's probably a quarter of their width. Um, they're all about the same height. And uh, that's a tremendous difference. And uh, which we knew about 20 years ago, would have been a whole different setup, a whole different orientation for our practice. But it is what it is. So on that note, I'm going to let you go. And I hope that you understood the progress of my thinking through this. It was like, if I was to summarize this, and this will be the title is, is it, is it really a valid idea to be chasing ketones? A high fat diet really isn't a healthy benefit to avail yourself of. And it really isn't necessary to be chasing ketones unless you have a very specific specific medical condition in which you need to do that. That would be epilepsy, neurological conditions. Now you have Parkinson's and certainly dementia and mild cognitive impairment. All those are pretty justified in my mind. And um, 
when I look at my own situation, I think it was the dropping of the carbs, primarily the oxalates that came through a lot of the food. I was big on almonds and almond milk and so on and so forth. They're high oxalates. And if you see oxalates as being like fiberglass, little shards of glass that you're shooting through your GI, uh, very inflammatory. They're certainly precursors for a a family of of kidney stones, but more that they're cutting your gut with a continual exposure. And uh, dropping that, I think, was probably the primary variable primary variable in my situation. Secondarily, I think getting into ketosis as a anti-inflammatory or a pre-inflammatory to keep you from being inflamed. They don't know which way it it is yet with ketones that um, the two together were dramatic. And so now here we are seven years later that now I'm as I'm leaner than I was when I was in high school. It's not skinny. I feel quite strong. I feel um, I feel very solid. So, okay. Till next time. Thanks for listening. Bye bye. Hi, this is Doctor Goldcamp. I just wanted to encourage you to send in your questions to Doctor Goldcamp at ketonaturopath.com. Many of you have, and so what I've done with these questions that gotten back to most of the people I email, but some of the questions that were so good, and if they were overlapping to other questions, I would combine them and try to put that into the topic of a podcast, either via one of the micro topics that are covered in an interview. As you know, we cover a lot of topics in any given interview, or some of my own sort of reporting, if you will, on some of these issues. So uh, please keep the questions coming, feel free to send in an email and uh, I will get back to you. One thing I want to say, a number of questions have come in in which I've given this answer and the email didn't work. So just make sure that you're receiving at the same email that you sent it in. And I think that might've been the difficulty. So I look forward to your questions. I just wanted to make sure that you knew that I'm hoping to answer your questions. And I think this world of keto is not just black and white. You know, it's nice that it's simple, but it's not simple for some. I'm really trying to, you know, go down as anybody, any of you who have listened to all my podcasts, we started way back when, history and evolution, epilepsy, and so on and so forth. You know, now we're seeing some tremendous overlap in uh, various uh, mental disorders, schizophrenia, or neurological disorders that are not just epilepsy. And also, just for people in losing weight, it's sometimes pretty complicated for them to engage in keto, and so they need some help. And so that's the whole point of, at least that's what I think I'm doing, is exploring the world of why are there other factors? So in exploring some of those other factors, we've covered addiction, we've covered hormones, we've covered uh, nutritional deficiencies, we've covered certain metabolic lab results. And we'll go further. We'll even get to more on genome and aspects. So these are all just contributions that make for an obstacle for some people to engage easily in the ketogenic diet. This is my belief, and these are the things that I've discovered. And I think other people have discovered some of these things, but not ever put them together. So stay listening, send in your questions, and I will definitely get back to you.